Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We are located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. There is a God. It's not me. And he adores me. Say it with me. There is a God. It's not me. And he adores me. This has been our mini creed throughout this series that we started the year with. This series called The Me I Want to Be, based somewhat on a book by John Ortberg with the same name. And I've really enjoyed kind of unpacking everything that is within this creed. But I find it very interesting because are there ever moments when you're not convinced this is true? Do you ever wonder to yourself, I'm not so sure. I mean, we all sit here and we keep saying this every week. But there are moments that I'm not completely confident in this. In fact, for a lot of people, there's one single question that can bring this whole creed into question where we're really not sure. We can ask this question. If there is a God, it's not me, and if he adores me, if he adores us, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Why is there evil? That's a very fair question, and you'll hear it asked a number of different times, a number of different ways. You've probably heard some of these responses before. Pain, pain's a part of life. Got to turn it up, guys. It's, it's way too quiet. It Steve? leaves a sour taste in your mouth. That's, you just have to learn from it. I think some people believe it's a test of your faith, but if you don't, have a faith to believe in, it kind of makes you wonder why, why is there suffering in this world? You know, famine and death, that sort of thing. It was a reason why he took him. Uh, maybe he needed some angels up there to protect, protect, to help him in the fight against the devil. A baby is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Why doesn't he want me to have this? I think that bad things are just the way that you see them. Thank God's in everything we do. I don't think God does these things to people. I think he has a way of getting us through it. Why would anybody want to create people who do horrible things to each other each and every day? It doesn't make any sense. People suffer because sometimes they put themselves into it and others just, it just happens to them. When my grandma died, she died of cancer like six years ago. And I remember like when she was like a few days before she passed away, she was like, it couldn't possibly be a God. No one would ever want, no one would ever want to inflict this pain. Some of the best lessons I've learned in life and the best um, feelings in my heart came from very painful times. I don't think God's sitting there and saying these people are hurting and maybe I should help them or we're, I'm going to pray to this, you know, being and he's going to save me. I don't think that happens. Um, I think he's just there, I guess. <laughs> I'm constantly struggling, I suppose I'll be brutally honest, with uh, suicidal ideation and I find it very miserable often, despite the beauty of the world, to be made conscious in this form. Why? Why, why does it pay? Why was why were the little kids shot the other day? I want to know why this happened, but 
he's showing me that he's here with me. So I suppose the answers will come. It's just I'm going through a journey right now that's painful. I think it's really the most difficult question that we could grapple with as we begin to understand so much more about who God is and how we interact with him. Ronald Nash was a professor of philosopher at Reformed Theological, and he said it this way, every philosopher believes that the most serious challenge to theism, which is the belief in God, was and is and will continue to be the problem of evil. And it's good to wrestle with this question. You know, it, it might be nice in a way to think, oh, I don't really want to think about this. But you really should because everyone is faced with this question at some point in your life. And I love it. In The Reason for God by Tim Keller, he likens this conversation and these questions as building up an immunity. You know, if you have no antibodies in your system, you'll be susceptible to every possible virus. Or, you know, if you got the right shot, you have a 10% lower chance of getting the virus, apparently. But it's good to build up the right immunity. And this is how you build up that immunity. You start to grapple with these deep and difficult questions. And so as we do this today, and, and I know for a lot of us, this is a question that really resonates. It can resonate philosophically. It can also resonate simply based on your life experience, what you're going through right now. And what's great is we have a lot of company in unpacking this question. This is a question that the authors of the Bible also wrestled with on a regular basis. The prophets and the poets, they would cry out. They would say, how long, Lord, how long? Whether it's in the Psalms, or whether it's the souls in Revelation saying, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth for what they've done? The evil that's been put upon each other throughout this world. And so I want to look in depth at an Old Testament prophet. His name is Habakkuk. Say that. Habakkuk. Three Ks, not all together, luckily. Hard to spell. One B... He's an Old Testament prophet. Turn there if you would. He lived in an interesting time. He was a prophet to God's people, the nation of Judah. Now, it wasn't called Israel at that time because Israel had split into two countries. The, the northern one kept the name Israel. The southern one took the name Judah. And the people from Judah did a little bit better at following God than the people in the north. So they lasted as a country a little bit longer. They were eventually judged. They eventually lost their land. And Habakkuk was a prophet to Judah towards the end. So he was seeing a lot of difficult things. I love this prophet. The book is very short. It's only 1,011 words, just the length of like two newspaper columns. So you could probably read it in 10 minutes. And it's one conversation from beginning to end between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk is posing these types of questions that we are talking about. Verse 1 says, The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. And in this case, prophecy means pronouncement or even like burden. Then in your Bible, the very next thing is probably a heading that says Habakkuk's complaint. How many of you it says that in your Bible? Yeah, I think most every translation is going to say that. I already find that comforting. Here's Habakkuk, a prophet of God who comes in and he says, I have a complaint. I like it. What is his complaint? Verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So Habakkuk is making a very strong case here. He's saying things are not the way they should be. Why aren't you doing anything about this? 
It's a great question. And you can see already there's a tension starting to arise between our creed and our experience in this world. So Alvin Plantinga is a Christian philosopher, and he kind of takes what we believe about God and evil and summarizes it into five quick statements. The first one, of course, is God exists. We accept this as fact. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. There's no explanation about where God came from. There's no expectation of lifespan for God, or he was there in eternity past. He will be there in eternity future. God is, he exists. With that, God is omnipotent. You can see those two words that are coming together. Omni meaning all, potent meaning strength. He has all power. All power, all strength is God's. There is nothing that he cannot do. Whether you're talking about acts of nature, whether you're talking about acts of the will, seeing the future, there is nothing. With that, God is omniscient. Same omni meaning all. And now, you know, this last suffix you're seeing similar to the word science or the word prescience, or sentience, it's all kind of this same word family, that God is all-knowing. There is nothing that God does not know, whether it's the, you know, how the world was created, the history of God's people, the history on your internet browser. I mean, there is nothing that God doesn't know. If you didn't know that, even if you clear it, he still knows, okay? Everything he knows. With that, God is holy good, completely good. There is no part of God that isn't good. We're talking about character here. We're talking about nobility and beauty and strength and power and love. There is no part of God that is not wholly good. There's no part of him that is evil, and yet evil exists. And this is where the tension starts to rise, because you're thinking these five thoughts can be difficult to hold together as one one constellation, one collection of ideas. God being wholly good, being all-powerful, all-knowing, in existence, and yet there's a lot of evil in the world. So what we're talking about very quickly is, there is a God, it's not me, he adores me, then why is there evil in the world? And this question will directly attack every part of our creed, beginning with the beginning. There is a God. The first tension that we'll see is, maybe there isn't a God. Maybe we jumped a little bit ahead of ourselves here because there's so much evil in the world, it makes me think that there must not be a God at all. What does it matter if we believe him to be all-powerful, if we believe him to be all-knowing, if we believe him to be wholly good? Maybe he doesn't exist. Maybe we've been sort of ascribing and imputing these values on some sort of cosmic stuffed animal. We might have completely missed the boat here because it Almost makes sense, doesn't it? There's so much evil in the world, there must not be a God at all. Another tension would be if God is completely able to stop evil and suffering, because he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing and he's wholly good. If he's able to stop evil and suffering and he doesn't, maybe he doesn't adore us at all. Maybe we've sort of inflated our sense of self-worth and self-beauty to him that we must be so great that God loves us. What if he doesn't? What if God is saying, yes, I see your suffering. Eh, you'll be fine. You know, some sort of tough love or worse. Maybe he just doesn't care. Are we convinced that God adores us in the face of all this evil and suffering in the world? David Hume was a Scottish philosopher, 18th century before our country was even founded, he said it this way, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. If he is able to but not willing, then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Why then is there evil? 
And I think in chapter 1, this is the question that we're hearing from Habakkuk. He's saying, God, are you sure that you still adore us? Are you sure that we are still your people? Because I see evil and suffering everywhere. And if you read the story of God's people in 2 Kings or in 2 Chronicles, you'll see, first of all, there was a lot of sin and suffering and evil in the nation itself. The people were inflicting pain on each other because they weren't living for God. And it extended even further for that. Geopolitically, there was a lot happening in the region at this time. Empires were coming and going. And so what was happening during Habakkuk's era was, first of all, Egypt was an old empire. They were still around. Assyria was an empire that had been on the rise. In fact, Assyria had already conquered the northern kingdom and taken all of those people into exile. But both of those kingdoms were declining, and the kingdom of Babylon, basically Iraq today, was rising. And so Egypt and Assyria actually came together willing to fight against Babylon. Okay, so picture the Middle East in your mind. You've got Egypt right here, corner, you know, corner of Africa. They have to come up through Israel to get to the Middle East, right? Well, King Josiah of Judah at that time, one of the few kings who actually followed God, met Egypt and Assyria and said, you cannot come through our country. You cannot bring your army through here. So they killed him. Josiah's son became king. They also killed him. Another son became king. This time they took him into exile and Egypt installed a puppet king over Judah. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, now that Egypt is in charge of God's people, Again, you can imagine they're starting to freak out a little bit. Like, we've already done this. We were actually slaves in Egypt. Now they're in charge of us. We've now gone full circle. This is terrible. And in this moment, Habakkuk is crying out, saying, Are you sure you still love us? Are you sure that you still adore us? Because I'm not feeling it. The third tension that we really start to see is understanding that there are times when this evil and suffering just don't seem right to me. And I feel empowered to make that call, to look out and say, this just isn't right. And it's, that's not necessarily wrong that you feel that way, but it's very quickly we can take it to the next level and we can say, this evil seems pointless to me. Therefore, it must be universally pointless and it must be wrong. And we can very quickly step into the role of God. Habakkuk does this as well. In the next verse, God starts to explain to, to Habakkuk what's going to happen. Verse 5, God says, Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. This is great. We're all in on this. This sounds exciting. Verse 5. We love verse 5. Verse 6, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. This is prophet speak for Babylon is going to come and conquer you. So Habakkuk said, things are not going well, God. And God says, good news, I'm going to have Babylon conquer it all. And Habakkuk says, uh, what? That doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't seem like a good decision at all. We're going to lose our land to Babylon. I'm not sure that we're on the same page here. He says in verse 13, but God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked, that's Babylon, swallow up those more righteous than themselves? That's me. Right? You hear it, right? God, they're even worse than us. This doesn't seem right to me. 
So the existence of evil and suffering calls this entire creed into question. And therefore our entire faith. But when you start to examine it, you'll see that on the logic alone, it simply doesn't hold up. Here's why. The question that I have for you is, where did this sense within us of what is right, where did that come from? Why is it very uniform from culture to culture and from era to era? It has always been wrong to murder. It has always been wrong to steal. It has always been wrong to take advantage of the weak. It has always been wrong to pillage and plunder and so forth and so on. These things have always been wrong. And that code has been fairly standard for as long as society has been keeping records. Now, you could claim, and this is the claim, no, no, that's like a group decision by humanity. Humanity has decided collectively that this is the best way to run a society. If we treat each other this way, things will simply run more smoothly. And when things run more smoothly, that's better for everyone. So we're just kind of all in on this idea together. Here's the problem with that philosophically, okay? If you've gone down the road of the lack of the existence of God, you're now all in, double down on straight up Big Bang evolution. And all of the rest of the world runs contrary to that idea, okay? Think about it this way. If you had to summarize evolution into one statement, you would probably say survival of the, this is straight Darwin, right? So then why would a society decide not to prey on the weak? This is harsh, but stay with me, okay? Because if it's survival of the fittest, why would I want to help someone who's weaker than me? It doesn't make any sense. Why would I care for someone who's sick? That's going to cost me time and money. And the fact that they got sick kind of means they're weak to begin with. And they're just going to get sick again. It'd be a lot cheaper to just... Not to mention, what they're consuming now, I get to have. Because if there's no standard, there's no objective standard, the only standard I have is in personal self-interest. So if I have a farm, you have a farm next to me. I am bigger than you and I have more brothers. I am taking your farm. I don't care about you. I don't care about your family. Off you go. I may kill you. I may just let you starve. Because now my farm is double. My thing is better. It doesn't matter what happens to you. See, this is where survival of the fittest would really take us. So there's no possible explanation for why mankind would be the one element of society that would run retrograde to the rest in terms of survival of the fittest evolution. Does that make sense? I know it's egg-heady, but dig in. I'm convinced it is true. So you start to realize, no, 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 there, there is a sense of morality and justice and others-centeredness and others-focusedness that has come from somewhere. And that somewhere seems to be universal because it's cultures that are not connected or related in terms of geography or time or anything else. And that sense of code has come from God himself. He has created that within us, and that is the code that we all live by. So the existence of evil and suffering doesn't disprove God. It actually proves his existence. Now, I've heard some people say it's like a seesaw with God on one side and evil on the other. I personally don't love that metaphor because it, it by definition, they would be equal in terms of power and importance, and that, that I would have a huge problem with. But think of at least the relationship between them. You cannot define something as good unless you can define something else as bad. Otherwise, it's just is. And that doesn't have any logic to it. 
C.S. Lewis is one of the brilliant Christian thinkers, and in his book, Mere Christianity, he said it this way. It's long, but it's good. When I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have just given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancy. So this fairly universal definition of evil demonstrates that God exists. But how can I know that he is good? If we're going to talk about the goodness of God, I think you would assume that a good God would always eliminate evil. Right? That makes sense. I think that's fair to assume that a definition of goodness is that you would eliminate evil as far as you are empowered to. And God, there's no limit to his empowerment, so he would eliminate evil. So if God adores me, he would also stop suffering. But if you think about it, there are so many times that to stop evil now has consequences on the future. Now, we like to assume stopping evil now automatically makes the future better, right? Because there's less evil now, which means going forward, there's going to be even less evil later. The problem is when you start to see the complexity of the world, that's not always the case. There are times when stopping an evil now would result in a greater evil later. You can think of the first person who contracts a rare and deadly disease. They're a victim of something they know nothing about. You pray for them. They still die. But from the treatment of them, from the autopsy of them, might come research that would save thousands of lives later, you know, averting a plague of some sort. Which is the greater evil? Or you could think of an artist who's experiencing personal pain and struggle. And God doesn't remove that pain in their life. And they create some beautiful symphony or painting or book that turns thousands and thousands of people toward God because of the insight that they gained in their suffering. Which is the greater good? Or what if God, in order to keep evil from happening to you, he violated the free will of humanity? Because, of course, that part sounds great. I'd be happy for God to step in and intervene anytime we're going to do something evil and then just leave us alone when we're going to do something great. That's not the way that the world works. Evil actually exists because freedom exists. Because God created us with the ability to be free, we have the ability to sin and injure. We also have the ability to love and heal. And it's with that freedom that both of these attributes are born. Now, the most important thing in your life is to be restored to God and to learn to worship him. Any sort of required mandatory behavior is not worship. It's just simply robotic, right? Do any of you have robots yet in your house? No one? Do you have Alexa in your house? Do you have Siri in your house? Do you have the robot vacuum in your house? Who has a robot vacuum? Yeah, oh yeah, there's like... There's like 10 in every service. I actually think that's true. I think it's like 10% of the houses in Long Island would have a robot vacuum. Now, the vacuum is very cool. I think you can set it to go off whenever you want, and the robot will clean your floors. It's fantastic. But I don't think you feel loved 
by your robot when it cleans, right? If you do, we should talk. Text me after the service. Okay, that's not necessarily love and adoration that your robot is showing you. There's a chance that there's some sort of like transitive love property that happened. You know, maybe someone who loved you gave you the robot when they should have given you jewelry, but they gave you the robot. And then the robot cleans the house. So yeah, okay, fine. They might love you. Or maybe it was just Amazon Prime one day shipping. We don't really know. That's not love. Any sort of robotic mandatory behavior. So in order for us to show love to each other, in order for us to show love to God, we also have to be capable of showing harm and evil to each other and to God. Does that make sense? Out of that freedom has come both evil and worship. But we're still not done. We still have this middle piece. It's kind of the hardest one to understand to say, I'm still not convinced it has to be this way. Because you're saying God reveals himself through the presence of evil. He also reveals himself through creation. So we didn't have to do that one, did we really? And we, oh, God demonstrates his love for us by allowing us freedom. Well, he also demonstrates his love for us through blessing. So why couldn't we have just done that one? Are we really sure that suffering is required? Are we confident that we have to do this? And this is very hard for us, and it's not your fault. And I mean that honestly, because our culture that we were raised in struggles to understand meaningful suffering. In fact, we have been told for over 200 years that we have in alienable rights. What are the inalienable rights that you have? You have the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, right? Thomas Jefferson. Suffering is a way buzzkill on this. Pursuit of happiness, suffering, we're just not feeling it. We want to be happy. We want to have life and liberty full libertarian freedom to pursue joy in life. That is not God's plan for our lives, the pursuit of happiness. It's actually restoration to him. And so when we see that, we start to understand that the suffering has incredible value and meaning, much more than we can really even understand. And this is not simply, you know, whatever kills you makes you stronger, whatever doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. Sorry, night to shine. Um, there's this sense that God is going to meet you in your suffering because that's part of the way that he has designed the world. Isaiah the prophet, God said to him this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So part of this is a trust to say, you know what, God, your ways are better than mine, and I'm going to submit to your ways. But he still brings other value and meaning to our suffering. We may not see it yet, but it is there. God uses the struggles in our life because suffering is actually how we grow. And so we start to realize what we're going through now isn't going to compare with where we can be as a result of this suffering. It says in Romans, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That you can't even compare it. And what's interesting is researchers in other fields are still coming up against this same truth. It's not simply doctrine out of the Bible. There's a researcher, his name is uh, Malcolm Gladwell. And he talked about the advantage 
of disadvantage in his book, David and Goliath. And he has a fascinating section where he talks about dyslexic entrepreneurs. This is what he had to say. A very large percentage, a much larger percentage of successful entrepreneurs are dyslexic than in the general population. And many of the Richard Branson, Paul Orfila, uh, Charles Schwab, uh, John Chambers at Cisco, I could go on, Craig McCaw, the cell phone pioneer, the list of, these guys are all dyslexic, right? David Nealman at JetBlue. And if you talk to them, they will explain to you that they don't think they succeeded in spite of their disability. They think they succeeded because of it. Um, for them, and if you walk, and I sat down with a, two dozen of these guys. I've got, I got sort of obsessed at the beginning of my book, in the middle of my book, with talking to dyslexic entrepreneurs. Um, and their stories are all the same. They all look back and will tell you, you know, if it hadn't have been for the fact that I couldn't read or read well, in second and third and fourth grade. I would never have, and they start listing all the things they were forced to do that proved to be ultimately advantageous. I would never have learned how to listen. I would never have been forced, in second grade I, I, was, I made friends with the smartest kid in the class and I basically convinced him to do my homework for me. I can't tell you how many times I heard that from this <laughs> So what are they learning at that age? They're learning delegation. They're learning how to communicate with other people, motivate other people, form a team. I mean. And they, and they do that in Brian Grazer, the Hollywood producer who's dyslexic, his whole thing was uh, he would, he figured out how, he would fail his tests and he would go in and he would talk his grade up from a D to a C. So from the age of this high, he's learning negotiation, right? And by the end, by the time he hits college, he's brilliant at it. And then what did he do? He becomes a Hollywood producer. What is that about? It's about negotiation, among other things. And he's been practicing his entire life. So it's this sort of weird thing where he would say, as difficult as my dyslexia was, and for all of these people, their childhoods were not fun. I mean, I interviewed Gary Cohn, who's the president of Goldman, who's profoundly dyslexic. His childhood just sounds, I mean, dark and miserable. No one thought he was capable of doing schoolwork. They thought he was, they were amazed that he even graduated from high school. Um, despite that, they all look back and they say, you know what, it was a desirable difficulty. It was, I was taught, I was forced to learn stuff I would never even have thought about. A desirable difficulty. Think about that phrase for a second. See, People will tell you that the greatest promise in the Bible is that for those who believe, they spend eternity with God in heaven. And I would agree with that. That's true. But I personally find this promise of the Bible to be equally profound. That God uses the struggle in your life to form you into the person that he wants you to be. Your suffering is never wasted. Paul wrote in Romans 8, For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so that suffering that you're in right now, that difficulty, that pain, he is using that to form you into the person that he's created you to be. I wish we could learn another way. I really do. I wish we could just be scholars, we could be astute, we could just read, we could just talk, and boom, we would grow and learn. But that's simply not the way that the world works. We are formed and forged through suffering. 
John Orberg has an extended passage in his book where he just starts to explain how many people in the Bible who made incredible contributions to the world and to the history of our faith, how it started for them in a struggle. God could have let Abraham stay in the comfort of Ur. Moses stay in the splendor of Pharaoh's courts, and Aaron stay in the safety of the crowd. He could have kept David away from Goliath, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace, Daniel out of the lion's den, Elijah away from Jezebel, Nehemiah out of captivity, Jonah out of the whale, John the Baptist away from Herod, Esther from being threatened, Jeremiah from being rejected, and Paul from being shipwrecked, but he didn't. In fact, God used each of these trials to bring people closer to himself to produce perseverance, character, and hope. Now, what's beautiful is suffering isn't only the key to unlocking the me that you want to be. That's part of it, but it goes even deeper because suffering is not just the key to a better you. It's God's plan for the redemption of of the world. Sometimes we can think of God as being distant or being far, but the cross of Christ shows us that God is in the suffering. Suffering is in his character. And there on the cross, his very nature was revealed. The picture in the Bible of what restoration to God looks like is resurrection. Think about that for a second. What is required for a resurrection? Someone has to die. I got bad news for you for who that someone is. When we learn to die to self, when we learn to go through incredible difficulty, that is when we start to understand the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. That he took on sin, he took on death so that we could experience resurrection. There is no redemption without suffering. And without the suffering, we would never understand nobility or courage or endurance or strength because all of those things only matter in the context of suffering. So even to the point on the cross, a moment of intense struggle for Jesus physically, even more so relationally, that God said, no, 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 this moment of suffering must happen because of the greater good that will be accomplished. And I know where a lot of you guys are at. We, we read and pray over your prayer requests every week. And I know that you're just in it right now. You just are. This week we have funerals and wakes and everything. I mean, it's all here. But know that the, the greater good that he can do in us is coming. And it comes for us partly from a position of trust. And so I want to ask the band to come back up because we're going to come together and we're going to start to just worship around this theme We'll go back to our buddy Habakkuk. See, Habakkuk wasn't really sure about this whole Babylon thing. So he asked God, how can you really let Babylon judge us? And God actually says, don't you worry. All evil will be judged. He says, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And that's an incredibly profound statement. The righteous will live by faithfulness. Faithfulness, continued, systemic obedience, step by step in the same direction. And this is such a profound statement that Paul quotes it in Romans 1, Galatians 3, Ephesians 2, over and over and over. He's saying, listen, we will live through him by our faithfulness. And then for the rest of chapter 2, God paints this picture of his power and his strength. 
what he can do that no one else can do. And he's saying, I will set everything right. There will be no evil that is unpunished. There will not be righteousness that is unrewarded. And God goes on and on for the entire chapter about what he can do and what he will do. And then Habakkuk is greeted by all of that from God. And this was his response. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame from his own lips. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. I think this is one of the greatest statements of worship in all of the Bible. It says, I've heard what you've done. Do it again. Do it here. Do it now. I want to see it. I want to experience it. I want to know what you can do in our lives. So I want to invite you to stand right now because as we pursue God in worship right now, we're going to be centered on that, knowing that he has done amazing things in the past. We've seen what he's done. We've seen it in the story and the history of his people. You've seen it in your own life. You've seen it in the lives of people that you know and love. But he's not done. God can meet you in your suffering if we learn to put our hope, our strength, our trust in him and in him alone. So we're going to sing this song together. Open your heart. Express your praise and your trust in him. Let's sing together.